Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, Richard and I discuss the way in which St. Paul uses the categories weak and strong to undermine human judgment in 1 Corinthians. This sets the stage for God to shame the church in Roman Corinth with the foolishness of Paul's weakness. It also sets the stage for a lecture I presented later that evening on the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. This week's podcast was recorded at Holy Merbear's Orthodox Church in St. Cloud, Minnesota, in front of a live, interfaith audience. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 32 of the Bible as Literature podcast brought to you live from Holy Murbearer's Orthodox Church in St. Cloud, Minnesota. kind of shocking to be doing this not, you know, in some dark corner, but here with all these wonderful people. I've never had anyone look at me besides you, Father. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes today. So we were reflecting on the drive up for this evening's program. We're doing the podcast and then a talk later on the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. We were reflecting on what might be a good topic, and we're still... Working through 1 Corinthians, Mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians, like all of scripture, is a text that just keeps giving. It keeps offering new insights if you just keep working through the material. Mm -hmm. Last week when we were talking about 1 Corinthians 4, we were talking about weakness and how Paul was really trying to help the people understand the importance of weakness. And not only the importance of weakness, but what weakness is and what weakness is for and how to recognize weakness. And it was complicated. And we were taking a while to kind of get through it. I mean, he spends a good solid, I think, three chapters at least before he moves on to start applying this distinction he's drawing or this discussion he's having about weakness and strength and so forth. What's interesting is that you'd think it'd be really obvious in a Roman setting what weakness is. I mean, the Romans made a business out of making fun of weak people. I'll just share before we get into the discussion with those that are here today for the podcast that it was really an integral part of Roman religion to ridicule the weak. That's the backdrop for 1 Corinthians because in Roman society, in Roman Corinth, specifically the context for this letter, in order to be able to participate in society, in order to be able to gain status, get access to jobs, get access to relationships that could help you in your own endeavors, you had to be able to be connected to the wealthy and the paragon of wealth and status in Roman society was the Roman patrician, the pater familius, the father of the family. And it was very common when you would go to dine with the pater familius after a religious ceremony where meat was offered to idols, part of the entertainment after the meal. So it'd be like going to church here at Holy Murbearers or gathering at your mosque, and then you go to the, the social hall, and instead of visiting and talking with each other, the priest or the imam would 
Invite someone in who is crippled. Invite someone in who maybe had a psychological disorder, someone who is homeless, and then would ridicule that person. And everyone sitting with the patrician, just after they made their offering to Venus or to Zeus, would applaud and laugh and joke the same way that today in American corporations, everybody smiles and claps for the CEO. <laughs> it's not because they like the CEO. <laughs> but they know they have to please him. Well, this was the system in Roman society. So in a society that would ridicule the weak so systematically, Dr. Benton, why do you think Paul is going to such lengths to clarify what weakness is and, and how it pertains to the gospel? Well, I mean, what Paul is really trying to do, and, and we started talking about this last week, Paul is really trying to just completely change the paradigm. The people really don't understand what strength and weakness even mean. That's the problem, is that they think they know what strength and weakness is. They think it's obvious what strength and weakness are, but they can't really understand. And Paul is really trying to emphasize that you don't get it. He says, I am the apostle, and I'm the one that's submitting myself to being ridiculed and to being imprisoned and to being tortured voluntarily. Now, you're claiming that you're strong, but I'm the apostle, and I'm your father who birthed you. And you're now having these silly arguments, as we see in chapter one, about who are you aligned with and who is your teacher. He says, I only sent those people so you could learn how to be like me. So how are you having these arguments about who's the best one? I'm the best one because I'm the worst one. Now, how does that work? How can you be the best one if you're the worst one? And this is what he's trying to do, is through this kind of absurdity, how do you have a teacher who is the one who's made fun of the most? It doesn't make sense. The teacher that everyone thinks is ridiculous that everyone makes fun of. He's saying, no, I'm having them do that. So you can understand. Not just a teacher, but specifically in, in a Semitic context and a Roman context, it's a very loaded statement. A father, Paul will claim later at the end of chapter four, that he is their father in the gospel. So again, in a Roman setting where the role of the father is to ridicule and to build up honor by shaming the weak, Paul, at least in Roman eyes, is shaming himself. It's very interesting. Right. He keeps saying, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he's saying that Christ is crucified, which you can't understand. But those who do understand see that this is power. But how does that make sense? How can God's son crucified be a symbol of power? Right. It doesn't make sense. And this is precisely what he's saying. It doesn't make sense. But then he says, For consider your call, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So he brings in what's foolish to say, this is the strength of God. Well, and it's striking, and again, I'm going to just share some historical context here since we have a broader group today. It's striking that Caesar's title was the son of the gods and the savior of the world. That was his title. The titles of the ancient kings in the ancient Near East was the son of God. Like King Tut, Tut Ankh Amun in hieroglyph means the image of the god Amun which means in the ancient world, they understood that if you were the God's son, you were a reflection of his power on earth. So imagine now you have Paul talking about weakness and honor and shame and strength and so all these different themes, and then he presents 
the weakling Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It's yeah, and, and very striking. It's, and it's, we preach Christ crucified. So we can say, oh, well, maybe he's talking about the resurrected Christ, and that's the source of life, that's the source of strength. No, he says preaching Christ crucified as the basis. I mean, if we think about it, this is the thing. We're so programmed to a certain kind of language as Christians that we brush through complete absurdities, okay? How is it the case that he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus? How does this make sense? If you're preaching Christ crucified, i.e. dead, how is this a source of life? It doesn't make sense. Especially when the source of life in human systems of tyranny, in the setting where humans rule the earth, the source of life is the Caesar, the king, or the emperor who can control the population and who can control resources to create a setting for life. This is what people respect. They want a strong president, they want a strong king, they want a strong leader because their reference for what life is, is worldly. Suddenly you have Paul turning all of this on its head with this idea of a crucified Messiah. And I don't think it's a new idea. You know, very often Christians talk as though the New Testament is saying something different than the Older Testament. But in fact, you have this idea already in the prophets, don't you? This idea of the destruction of Jerusalem. God destroying his own city. And you have to understand in the ancient context, the city is where the God resides. This is where you have the God's temple. The temple in Semitic languages was the house of the God. That's how you would refer to it, the house of the God. If you go all the way back to Sumerian, which is not a Semitic language, it's the big house. It's a residence. So to destroy your city is to destroy your own dwelling. How does it make sense for a person to burn down his own house? Under what circumstances would it make sense? How could President Obama or President Bush, and I mentioned both because it, I'm neither conservative nor liberal, neither is Dr. Benton, we are scriptural. But how would it make sense or how would it sound to you if after this terrible tragedy of the beheading of this journalist, President Obama stood up and said, this was done to us by the hand of the Lord and we deserve it and we will not retaliate. How would you feel as Americans if that's how your president spoke? Well, that's how God speaks in the Torah. And the same God who speaks that way allowed his own son to be executed. And just to show you how, like, as human beings, as Christians, we still fight against this because we want to say the source of life and the source of power is the resurrected Christ, right? But then in chapter 2, But I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. But he goes on, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right. I decided that I wanted to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. He's just digging at the people saying, I decided that I was going to be as low as possible in my understanding. He keeps going. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I didn't want to make sense. So here's Paul coming with a God that makes no sense and a word that makes no sense. What purpose could this serve? The only purpose this can serve is to start saying, do you actually understand what makes sense or what doesn't make sense? Right. How do you feel, for example, when I say Jesus Christ is a weakling, those of you who are Christian cringe because in our liturgy, all we say is glory to Jesus Christ, glory to Jesus Christ. Why do we ascribe glory to Jesus Christ in our tradition? Because the power that he is wielding is not the power that you're dreaming of. 
The power that you're dreaming of is the power of Zeus, which is expressed in the army of Caesar. What Paul is saying is that your category for what strength is, your paradigms for what weakness is, are wrong. That the teaching is undermining the human system of logic and reason. Because no matter how altruistic you try to be as a Christian, when you see someone ridiculed, it's hard not to look down on them. Pitying someone who's ridiculed is not love, it's condescending. When someone is ridiculed and you look at them being ridiculed, you still think less of them. Look, and I've mentioned this before in the podcast, Richard, how we think that we've progressed because we're all Hegelian at heart. We all believe in the lie of progress. And we think that we would never treat women or homeless people the way the Romans did. But just go on the news, and you don't even have to watch the stupid CNN and Fox News, which are basically the modern theatron, where you watch the Christians get eaten by lions. Just go to Google News and search on Britney Spears. And look at how they ridicule her. And there's always a young woman whom they ridicule in the media. Britney Spears, all of the Christians would say, oh, she's so immoral, she's this, she said, no, she's Mary Magdalene functionally. She's the village prostitute possessed by seven demons whom only Jesus loved. But you, all of us as Christians, watch how they treat her on the media and we buy into it, which proves that we don't accept what Paul is saying. Well, and when we look at the implication of this, if you say that the power of life comes from the one whose son was crucified, what does this mean? It means that the one who seems to have put him to death, Caesar, is not the one who holds power because he's the one that follows the paradigm correctly. He's the one who makes sense. Who's the most powerful one? The biggest, best-looking guy with great armor, a big army, like a really nice horse. Paul was sickly and bald in the tradition yeah. and he was dressed like a beggar, just so you know. <laughs> this, is, this is the one who makes sense. Right. Who's the most powerful one? I used to make a joke, probably in bad taste, about the fighting in Haiti. Who wants to be the president of Haiti? You know, and uh, is this worth fighting over or not? But the reason I can make the joke is because the power isn't there. The power is who wants to run the Kremlin, not who wants to run Haiti. This makes sense to the human being because right. then there's actual power there. Right. And Paul is saying, I have actual power, and it's in Christ crucified. And you say, okay, that makes no more sense. It's not a power that looks like power to your filthy human eyes. And so what this begins to do is the implication. It starts to break down our own human understanding of right. power. And then you have Jesus standing before Pilate saying, you can do whatever you want. The only power you have is what's given to you by God. You don't have any power, at least that I recognize, I only recognize the power of God. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you people are talking about how wise and how wonderful and how well-known you are. How blessed you are how to blessed... be orthodox. Exactly, how blessed you are. And, but what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Look at me. I'm the apostle. And I'm blessed because I do not recognize those powers that are blessing you. The yeah. powers that are blessing you with real estate and 401ks, I don't recognize them. Right. I recognize the powers that actually give life and death, and that is God. I recognize God alone as we understand him in scripture. La ilaha illallah for our Muslim guests today. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's interesting because in the Gospels, and I think people 
either don't pay attention to this or they gloss over it or they theologize it. But in the Gospels, no one is allowed to see the resurrected Lord. When you run to the tomb, the tomb is empty. And that is precisely what Paul is talking about when he talks about weakness and strength in 1 Corinthians. Because you still, when you run to the tomb, you're looking for Zeus. You're looking for Apollo. You're looking for a champion. And so you want Jesus to be raised in glory and prove once and for all that you're on the right side. You want him to march into Jerusalem and take back the city from the Romans and establish his kingdom. And because that's what you want, you will not be allowed to see him. And it's very important in the tradition that you cannot be an apostle unless you beheld the resurrected Lord, which means that for everybody else, you don't have access to the resurrected Lord. You have access to what Paul says, having been sent to you by the resurrected Lord. Because otherwise, you would start to daydream, as my Egyptian father says, about hot cabbages. Now, I never daydreamed about hot cabbages. My dad daydreams about hot cabbages. But what, what he said, you daydream, you start to get excited about power like the disciples in the Gospel of Mark. And so your hand is slapped. Stay away from the resurrection. All you can see, because you still don't understand how God views weakness and God views strength, all you're allowed to see is the crucifixion. And that's where you're left in the Gospel of Mark. And once you think you understand, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age. In this age also can mean in this world. Correct. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. So as soon as you think you know, just let it go. You don't. You can't. Because as soon as it begins to make sense in a worldly sense... It's no longer God's word. It's no longer God. It's you speaking. It has to undermine what we understand as logic and what we understand, because much of what Scripture is doing is it's trying to release us from the bonds of biology that only are concerned about keeping us and the next generation alive. Scripture is in a perpetual state of revolution against the human being. It is in a perpetual state of revolution against you. And it is always tearing down you know, I'll borrow from the Wachowski brothers, the matrix in your mind, and it is not building anything else up. It is an anti-idolatry tradition. So I think that's all we have time for today, Dr. Benton. Thank you, it Father. It was a pleasure, and it was exciting to be able to do a podcast with so many wonderful people here at Holy Mirror And uh, I, I Thank hope, you very much. I hope it's not our last time here, Father Nathan. I hope we get to do this again. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.